Let us pray. Father God, as we come to a new book of Scripture, to hear from the prophet Habakkuk, we pray that you might feed us from your word this morning. Give us a portion in which we are blessed by. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we were going to go into Exodus. We are still going to go into Exodus. I plan to go into Exodus after the new year in January. And why I really wanted to do that is twofold. I wanted us to be in Christmas passages during Christmas. I I know for the last, I think, two years, we haven't so much done that. But I thought it was a good time to do the Christmas story. But also, we're about to celebrate 290 years here as a congregation on November 12th. 290 years this Reformed congregation has been upon this soil, this plot of land. We are a byproduct of the Reformation. And actually, it is from the book of Habakkuk. It is a verse there that the Apostle Paul later uses in the book of Romans that a German monk named Martin Luther would really kick off the Reformation of which we hailed hail from. And so I want us to really have an appreciation of this book as we consider, in one sense, the history of this congregation over the next couple of months. But in understanding this book, I also believe we understand the own, our own date and time, how we should look at the world as we go about reading the news, as we hear the things we hear about society. So that's why we find ourselves in Hebrew. Now, technically, if you wanted to say this like a Hebrew, his name is Habakkuk. That just sounds kooky to me. So I'm going to say Habakkuk. I'm not going to pronounce it like a Hebrew would. You're a better person than I if you do that. But when it comes to this book of Habakkuk, a good first question to start with is, when it comes to any prophet, is who is that? Well, Habakkuk, is his name actually means, in one sense, one who kind of wrestles with God or engages with God. It, and he is a prayer warrior. I really think that Habakkuk's story is a story of a prayer warrior who has been praying to God as he sees the nation in which he lives, Judah, continue to devolve and flounder and become more and more godless. And he is one of those individuals who sees the problem and the enormity of the problem, and he's been praying to God to fix the problem. And God hasn't fixed the problem, at least as he observed. And and so it becomes a very relatable story to us. We as Christians can be very prone when we pray to God to have already in mind how God can fix the problem. When we have something that arises, we often 
while we don't really admit it, we'll kind of bow our heads and pray to the Lord. And we already have in our mind the way that he's going to solve things, the way that God needs to rectify this situation. And when we do that, when we fall into that trap, we've fallen into a trap that is a common one. I think very popular in evangelical culture. But it is one where we are under threat of forgetting who we are in relation to God. We are forgetting that God is God and we are not. He has a providence. He has a will that is and a plan, a divine plan that is outside our own. And we are to pray not so much to get God to be our genie in the box, but actually to conform our minds to the mind of God. And so the story of Habakkuk is one in which this prayer warrior essentially is having this take place through an oracle. Actually, when it comes to Habakkuk and his background, many seem to suggest that he likely was a part, like, for instance, R.C. Sproul suggests this, he likely was a part of what was called the professional or paid prophets. Basically, it became a pattern of the nation of Judah, and we even see this pattern in the Christmas story with Herod, that, that there would be prophets or pastorate or elders who were essentially funded by the government. And some believe because Habakkuk's identity there in verse 1 is Habakkuk the prophet rather than Habakkuk son of Jonah or Habakkuk, you know, from this town or this region, that he was possibly one of the faithful paid prophets in a group, a collective group full of patsies. A collective group full of, what does the king want us to say? We'll say that. What does the world want us to say? We'll say that. And this temptation is a temptation of really any pastoral pulpit that they have to contend with, even in our own modern day, or even in our own homes and households. So Habakkuk was a faithful pastor in a time with very few. He actually is a pastor who, a prophet of probably in the last two to three decades of Judah. He was a contemporary of prophets like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel. And so he is seeing the house of cards that is ancient Israel, basically ancient Judah, fall and collapse around him. And so here we have a book where our prayer warriors wrestling with God's seeming inaction and indifference throughout this land and throughout these, this people that Habakkuk loved. He's been praying to God for quite some time as we can see in how he receives this oracle, and he sees the imperfections, and he has come up with the fact that he's starting to worry that God is indifferent to it all. 
This is a part of the human condition. We can often get discouraged about God. You know, the astronomer Carl Sagan, he was half right. He has a time where he talks about the pale blue dot. And he kind of put it out there to the futility of this pale blue dot that is the planet Earth, this speck of dust in the greater cosmos that we create so much significance on. And we think of all our problems as significant problems, and yet they are so trivial when we behold the pale blue dot. And there's a half-truth in that, because the things that we think are big things in the hands of God are small things. Our biggest things, our biggest struggles that we will face in this life are small things before God. And yet, the half that Carl Sagan was unaware of when he shared that idea was that we have in the testimony of Scripture the revealed truth that God actually came down to this pale blue dot. He established the fact that he considers what goes on in this small speck of dust flying in the cosmos. He considers these things what goes on here as important. He concerns himself with these things. And so that is much of what Habakkuk is wrestling with. And of course, Habakkuk wouldn't have been the only person in ancient Judah praying this way, praying for this nation on the brink of utter collapse to be redeemed by God, to be restored by God. And actually, we can see in the Hebrew here that Unfortunately, what God allows Habakkuk to see, he first would not have wanted to see. There is a Hebrew word used here in verse 1 called Massa, which reveals that this oracle of God would be burdensome. Massa. Isaiah has a moment like this. I believe it's in Isaiah 13, 1, where he has an oracle that is a Massa. It is a burdensome. It's a hard one. It's going to be, there's going to be judgment involved in this oracle. And so right at the beginning here, Habakkuk establishing this is going to be hard to hear. And we even kind of talked about this downstairs when we talked about the attributes of God in Sunday school. There are things that are hard to comprehend about God, but it doesn't make him any less true. Some people will say to me, oh, I struggle with God's sovereignty. I struggle with believing that God might allow for this or that God might do this or the believing that God is still in control of that. What you are struggling with in such moments is in one sense is the massa of God's word. I would actually argue that many falsehoods and heresies that have sprung up through the Christian church throughout the ages are failure to struggle with the weightier things, the burdensome things, the harder things to to appreciate about the nature of God and what God has revealed in His Word. This prophecy is a massa. And we have to become our own version of Habakkuk. We have to be a wrestler. We have to be one who still embraces God in such moments and struggle with these things prayerfully through the Word of God to 
assess our commitment to God and his word. And so the prophet's oracle gives us words to this feeling, this massa, as he first cries out to God, he says, How long, Lord? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And then follows it up with verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Notice that word, how long. Again, it's been... It's clearly been very long, a long time that Habakkuk has been praying to God this particular prayer. And to one sense, to simplify what Habakkuk is saying, it's a little bit like when we drive on the road with kids, you get in the car and the kids ask, are we there yet? But actually in this passage, it's almost as if God's going to reveal to Habakkuk, I haven't even pulled out of the driveway yet. But don't worry. I'm doing something. I'm going somewhere. I'm driving this someplace. And this how long language actually, what Habakkuk is doing is he's actually echoing the very words of Scripture itself. You know, when we get into Exodus, we get into Exodus chapter 10. Aaron and Moses being mouthpieces for the Lord will Say to Pharaoh, how long until you humble yourself before God? How long? And then starting in Exodus chapter 16 and all through the book of Numbers, there are moments where God, through his prophet, how long before my people, this wicked congregation, you'll be obedient to me? How long? And in there's one sense that we could find this word in the Psalms, we can find it throughout the history of the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, there is this reality of the human experience where we worship a timeless God. We worship a God whose eternality is just massive and something we can't comprehend and we're just in its fullness and we're these finite creatures. And we always feel time is limited and the plan must be this instead of that. And a massa, and this massa and this struggle here for Habakkuk, and the struggle for us is to trust that God is at work. God is doing something. I think there's a great parable to kind of summarize some of what Habakkuk is struggling with, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know that story well. We have a traveler, and he's stormed by robbers, and he's basically left for dead. And the first, the priest walks by and the priest sees him and he goes to the right side of the road to, to walk on past him. And then a Levite walks by and the Levite sees the struggling traveler and goes right on by and walks on past him. And then a Samaritan, considered to Israel a half-breed, not even a full Israeli, not even a full Jew. Not a real Jew. He becomes the object of love and deliverance for the weary and wounded and weak traveled. Think about that parable from the traveler's perspective. 
In one sense, Habakkuk is like the traveler. And he believes God is passing up his people like a priest, the priest did or the Levite did. But no, God's going to make clear to Habakkuk, I'm not doing that at all. I am the Samaritan. I do have plans. But think of that traveler. The traveler would have been laying on the ground there, looking up and see the priest. And go, oh, this is great. The priest is going to save me. No, the priest didn't save him. The traveler would have been laying on the ground. Oh, this is great. The Levite is going to save me. The Levite didn't save him. The traveler would have been on the ground looking, going, Oh, the Samaritan's never going to save me. If a priest and a Levite went, Samaritan's not going to save me. And yet, the very thing that would have been the unexpected thing became the thing that delivered the traveler, the weary traveler. Habakkuk is the weary traveler. And God in this book is making clear, Habakkuk, you are going to see things in my day, in your day, that you'll understand, you'll begin to be cold. The fact that I do have a plan in place. So travel in faith. We, can, we want to be careful in our prayer life not to slander God with being like the priest or the Levite in the parable to Good Samaritan. And I don't believe Habakkuk crosses that line, but we are in danger of crossing that line when we get to this point. The temptation in the lives of the faithful is when we see evil flourishing, especially, again, American evangelism. We decide not only how the problem needs to be fixed, but often we just completely hand ourselves over to despair. You know, we just prayed the Lord's Prayer. We asked in that prayer, part of a small part of that prayer, but a part of that prayer and a significant part of that prayer is asking God to deliver us from evil. And think about that. Every generation, if your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents were believers and you know that, every generation, we just sing a song about, and it was really illustrating World War II in our hymnal of God of every nation. From the search of wealth and power and scorn of truth and right, from trust in bombs that shower destruction through the night, from pride of race and station and blindness to your way, deliver every nation, eternal God, we pray. Every generation of the Christian faith, every generation of the household of faith is going to pray that prayer to God deliver us from evil, which means that we are going to have the reality of the Habakkuk experience. God, all I see is violence. God, all I see is evil. God, are you doing anything for us? Are you just inert? Are you just not doing anything? And the answer is seen in verse 5. <laughs> the answer is that God is there. So Habakkuk closes out his first lament in recognizing that the law of God no longer seems to affect his people's behavior. That the family of Israel, the tribe of Judah, no longer look to God's word in order to establish their society. When that went, the courts and the judicial systems were plagued with corruption and injustice. 
The wealthy and well-connected could do whatever they want without fear of prosecution. Judges were happy to take bribes. Social support for the most afflicted in society began to decay. And of course, our society has none of these traits. So thankfully, it's just in the past. In the world in which they lived, their kings and rulers were willing to sooner burn the word of God than actually consider the genuine goodness and wisdom of it. In the world we live in, so many would rather hear newscasters or politicians bastardize the scriptures and misrepresent its teachings than really have courage to take up and read its truths. I could think of many disgusting illustrations of this in our own day. I'll pick on the governor of what was the state of my birth, who just decided to put up in Texas. He's the governor of California. Decided to put up in Texas billboards promoting abortion that quote the word of God about loving neighbor. That's disgusting. That is vile. That is wicked. And God will judge it. And God will set it right. And it might feel when we hear stories like this, I hear of the Bucks County guy who just goes down and prays in front of an abortion clinic. And three Sundays ago, 25 federal FBI agents storm his home with guns before his seven children? That's disgusting. How long, O Lord, will you allow something like this to go on? It's vile. And yet the problem isn't new. The problem is an old problem. The problem is a problem that every generation has had to deal with systems that want to do violence upon the greater ideals of God's Word and truths of God's Word. And so this was Habakkuk's lament. Notice his lament has been very personal, has been very focused on himself and his nation. And then we move into God's response in verse 5. Habakkuk has displayed a mature faith. Also, do we want to point this up for elite? His part. In that, he's not trusting the politicians to correct the problem. He's not looking to human government to fix the solution. He realizes and recognizes for even the government to reform, it has to begin with God. And so at that point, God begins to answer, and we can see in verse 5, while Habakkuk's complaint has been singularly minded on the country in which he lived and what he saw in it, God, the first thing he does is change Habakkuk's field of vision. Thus far, Habakkuk has been looking at the micro level, the small region he calls home. And God says, look amongst the nations. Look at the bigger picture. Because remember, God's promise to Abraham was the father of many nations. It was for the nations. Here we are worshiping in a Reformed church. And we call it Reformed because we are to be Reformed by the Word of God. But we also know the truth that God is ultimately desires to reform all the nations. And God is not one to have hyperbole, but look what he 
says here. He doesn't exaggerate. He's not alarmist, but look at this first verse. God uses four words to try to capture the grandeur of how wonderful this plan will be. He says, look, see, wonder, be astounded. You know, Barnum and Bailey Circus, ringing circus, I think they left for 140 years. They had a circus that essentially would use such words to convince a town to come out to go see their animals. Go, look, see, wonder, be astounded by these elephants and these scary clowns. But God is not a centerpiece of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He isn't some huckster. This is God. See, look, see, wonder, be astounded. I'm at work doing something marvelous in the world today. You wouldn't believe it if I told you the fullness of it. You wouldn't believe it, Habakkuk. If I told you everything in all of its entirety, you wouldn't believe it. But then he's generous. He says, but I will give you a few things. I will give you a good few things that when you see it happen, you can take comfort. And remember that I am the God who cares about this small speck of dust. I care about this dirt and a crossroads in the world called Judah. So let us consider then, what did the world look like in Habakkuk's day? When God says, change your perspective, look out at the world. The world was a mess, an absolute mess. This is a time of Assyria's power, Egypt's power, both nations that had subjugated and oppressed members of the tribe of Israel. Assyria had nearly conquered Judah. And then there's going to be the mention of the Babylonians. These are godless nations. These are oppressor kinds of nations. In one sense, I need you to appreciate what's going to be told to Habakkuk between verses 5 through 11. It's like in the modern day saying this. America is going to hell in a handbasket. But look at the nations. Look at China. Look at Russia. Look at North Korea. And be encouraged. <laughs> Take heart. The Chaldeans there, that's the name for Neo-Babylon, the ancient Babylonians. They were like this irrelevant city-state at the point. It would be almost in one sense like saying, and guess what? The North Koreans, they're going to conquer China and Russia, and then they're to come for us. Good news. And next week, we'll get into Habakkuk's response, which is what you're thinking right now. Really? This is a solution? But God's ways are not our way. Geopolitically, it, it would have still looked awful for Habakkuk. The ancient version of Tucker Carlson had plenty to go on. He did not lack for material. And yet God sees this judgment that is soon to come with wonder and awe. Be astounded to see this Habakkuk. And it's hard for us. It's hard for us to get ex all that excited about the judgment of God. 
And yet, that is what God is comforting his prophet with. See, we're a people addicted to believing God is weak because persecution is happening. We like to, we've been addicted, and I think American Christianity has promoted this throughout the world, unfortunately. We're kind of addicted to a faith system that always believes it's on the brink of utter destruction, near the end of the story. Habakkuk is a story that is starting to tell us, even when you see destruction, even when you see the smoldering ashes of a seemingly dead faith, God is still at work doing amazing things throughout the world. We wouldn't even believe what he is doing if he laid it out all before us. What it would mean for you and I. What would it mean for you and I to believe God can allow something to be utterly destroyed and still do incredible, greater work in the midst of that? Think back on that song of every God of every nation. When that writer wrote that song, he did not know what it would turn out to be. In that time, that moment of history's critical moment. And yet God had amazing work to do in that point. And so, yes, Babylon would be God's instrument of punishment and correction. His people had become so corrupt, so sinful and rebellious that this was God's plan. And when nations reach that point, God often has allowed them to be destroyed in order to remove the chaff so a new harvest of wheat can take rise out of the soil. God had already sent the people many warnings. Prophet after prophet had cautioned the people they must repent or else face God's coming judgment. But the people mocked the idea of it all. They first persecuted and then later even killed God's prophets who had the courage to boldly proclaim God's word. They instead chose to listen to the false prophets, corrupt men who preached a deceptive message of blessings found in godlessness. And so the Lord who had given Judah plenty of opportunities to repent, orchestrated a great convergence of powers and influences of history in Habakkuk's day that had been unimaginable and would cause great destruction in its path. And none of those nations were aware that they were being used as God's instrument, and yet they still were God's instrument. Habakkuk is one sense a story that tells us the expression, the devil is in the details, or the devil's, you know, in the midst, is not a fullness of that reality because God works in the midst of evil. God is still at work. God is not the passerby who has seen a struggling church in the year of our Lord 2022 and just walking on by like the priest or like the Levite. God is the God who already has plans and motion to bless the world in ways we can't even believe. And we actually can see now how this moment in history, it actually led up for what to led to what Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 would call the fullness of time. A moment where it was the perfect moment, where God established 
the perfect period in which his son would enter into the world. To be the last ultimate temple for us. The perfect temple of God, for he is God in flesh. He is God incarnate. We read about it in Luke. The series of the destruction of the first temple helped orchestrate. Even when Matthew opens up his gospel and he does a genealogy and he links the destruction of the temp- first temple and to 14 generations to Jesus. It's a significant time. And if we wonder and if we worry about the hardship, the pain, the suffering, how can God do something out of this? All we need to do is to look to that son who was made the Lamb of God to bear our burdens, to bear the full wrath of God for our sake and for our salvation. And we look to that cross in such moments and we go, Lord, I don't know what it is. Why violence seems to be prevailing in the land? Why evil seems to abound, Lord? But I do know how you work. I do know how you move. And I do know that when I get tempted to tell you, God, God, this is how you fix it. You need to do this very thing. You know, we're coming up to election, so you need to elect this candidate. I don't know the half of it, God. I don't even know a small percentage of it, God. It's far too, it's far beyond me. And so, Lord, I trust in you. Because I look to that cross and I see the fact that you were made to suffer. You were made to deal with wrath and violence upon violence, even though you were an innocent sufferer. And if I can look to that and I can see what you have done for that, for the nations, for the world, how you have blessed it, I can find peace in my own day. And so, congregation of the Lord, let us be at peace. For the Lord our God is good, and his mercy endures forever. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you do tell us the hard things. The masses. You... You do not sugarcoat it. You are not a superficial God. You are not fluffy in your promises, Lord, but no, you are meaty and weighty indeed. You reveal to us the hard truth, which is we deserve wrath and judgment often in our rebellion. This world deserves it. The nations deserve it. And yet you are at work in the world. You are the ultimate reformer in the world. You are a God of compassion and mercy, and you are a God who uses all instruments in order to secure a full restoration of this world. And so we pray in faith, Lord. We pray in thankfulness that you are such a God like this, that we can trust in you in this morning and in every morning, that we need not hand ourselves over to full and utter despair because you have taken account of this pale blue dot, this speck of dust, You have concerned yourself with it and even incarnated your son, the fullness of God upon it. So let us, that be our hope. Let that be our trust. And now as a congregation of the Lord, we take a moment to confess our sins, those times where we have failed to be faithful followers of you, our Lord and King. Amen.